Welcome, everybody, to episode 18 of the Tucson Hockey Podcast. I'm Ryan DeJoe. I'm the coaching director for the Tucson Junior Roadrunners. And as always, the Tucson Hockey Podcast is brought to you by Danny Platner and Altitude Home Loans. Danny Platner runs the Adult League. He's a good friend of the program. And he is a senior loan officer and the vice president with Altitude Home Loans and rates being at historically low interest rates for home needs. So if you need a mortgage or a refinance, please look up our good friend, Danny Platner at dannyplatner.com with Altitude Mortgage. His phone number is 520-241-1428 and Altitude Home Loans is an equal housing lender. All right. Joining us today on the podcast is the founder and CEO of 44 Vision Hockey, which we will talk about in depth. He's also a former NHLer and well-traveled professional hockey player, a former first-round pick. Rob Shrimp joins us today on the podcast. Rob, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for the intro, and uh, I'm excited to, to join you for a little conversation here today. I appreciate your time. No, I pre- no, I appreciate yours, and we were, we were talking offline a couple of days ago just talking about playing offense, and that's something I definitely wanted to talk about with in conjunction with what you're doing now with 44 Vision Hockey. And uh, just just to set up the link here with Tucson Hockey, you got in touch with my brother and his company, Mudwater, which is a coffee alternative. They're not a formal sponsor. My brother didn't want to do that, but he was nice enough to buy the podcasting equipment we use. So uh, that's a nice, that's a great donation. What a nice brother. That's uh, that's oh, pretty cool. Yeah, no. So he's he no he's he's helped us out. He sponsored some of the young uh, teams we have over the years, and no, Mud, Mudwater is definitely taking it off and and making it around the hockey circles, and it's a great coffee alternative. And I always like it because I you know I was never a big coffee guy, but the Mudwater still just it gives me a kick when I drink it, and I don't I don't feel dry like I do after I drink coffee. So again, that's not I'm a ex- Mudwater plug, but it is my brother, so I guess I am kind of biased. Yeah. I'm super excited to try it. A good friend of mine, Chris Pukowski, actually mentioned it to me. And, uh, you know, some for me with post-concussion stuff, I have a little bit of anxiety and coffee kind of spikes it a little bit. So Chris thought about me when he had the, you know, when he saw this stuff and he tried it out and he really had a good experience with it. So once I heard about that, I'm, I'm really stoked to give the product a try. I can't give it a a, a, a tire pumping like you just did because I haven't tried it yet. But I'm super excited to give that go because i think that's something we're, you know we really get used to is that coffee in the morning to to get you going or whatever and and sometimes for me like i said for me sometimes it gets me spiked a little bit with anxiousness so i'm excited for the alternative and and uh yeah it looks really cool i looked into the product and uh chris spoke really highly about it so um your brother's on to something great and i can't wait to be part of it no and I, I got to see it from the ground up and my my brother he's a startup ceo i mean i i, I used to see him drink pots of coffee all day yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Keep them going. Yeah. No. So, first, let's talk about uh, your newest venture, Forty Four Vision Hockey. It's kind of a different angle and a supplement for coaches in the hockey world. Talk a little bit about what it does, and maybe if you want a little bit about how it came about, or some of the things you thought about in finding this area to go into to be a supplement for individual offense and for individual players, but still within a team concept. Yes. Yeah, so that, you know, the way that works is as a, you know, former player and guy with experience through the game, um, what you do is you go in for the players on an individual basis and watch their game film and, and really help them understand the situations and, and situational awareness, hockey IQ, the, the kind of the why of why certain things work or, or the how on how to execute them 
what to look for and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and, and essentially what that is, is it's a support system to those players on an individual level. And when we, t- even at the pro level, a coach has 20 players, 20 plus players really to look after. It's hard for them to watch film and, and think of, you know, Timmy, Tommy, Johnny, everybody on an individual basis is opportunities. <laughs> you know, you're more watching it as a coach is more, you're thinking about structure. You're thinking about, you know, the four check or the neutral zone regroup, that sort of thing. It's not so much individualized. Um, so this is somewhere where, you know, with this platform, we get some really great coaches on the platform, a lot of great knowledge and experience to, to then take those individual players around the world. And you, you start to look after them and help them and support them in their game inside of, inside of the coaches systems. So wherever their opportunities might present themselves off the forecheck, it's like, this is how you execute the offensive piece of it. That's how I coach and show now that the puck's turned over. Now it's on your stick. Here's the passing options or here's what to look for. The little nitty gritty details of how to turn a defenseman, make their feet change the wrong way. So then you can expose this area of the ice and then walking them through and explaining the why of that. And really that's the individual piece, right? So it's really looking after that player and showing them these things, teaching them new things and where it doesn't take away from what the coach is saying. And the, you know, the one, two, two, you got to be the left. If you're the one, two, two on the left side, you got to be on the left side and be that four checker. That's not what we're taking away from. We're trying to say now, when you turn that puck over, here's your, you know, here's how to go from there. Um, and that's, that's a little bit, I think, uh, to touch a little bit on it, that's kind of a nuts and bolts of it. And we love the one, two, two. That's what we run with our high school teams. That's a shout out to coach Dan. No, but I, <laughs> and from my, no, from my perspective as a coach, I think sometimes I do get bogged down in a little bit too much of defensive systems. And also there's a way to teach offense as a system. It's okay. We want to funnel wide. Here's how we want to attack as a line. But I, something that we talked about that you do is within that framework, your diagnosing individual game film to really try and enhance the individual creativity part of offense. It's okay. Like you were saying, here's the puck on your stick now and let's probably like freeze it here. Okay. Here are the things running through your mind. And you as someone who was a professional hockey player for a long time, you can talk about the specific and very unique individual aspects of trying to play offense. So run us through a little bit about maybe one of your examples or something you've done where you've gone through a film session with someone and talked about their specific individual creativity. Cause you'll hear some coaches say, well, they kind of have the offensive flair or offensive skills or offensive mindset you can't teach, but someone like you, you found this, well, you really think you can teach things like this. So talk a little bit about your process when you're going through it with a player. Yeah, there's definitely information out there that that explains the why things work and and certain things for me to make the game the simplest form I think about it in is the fact that the nets are in the same place in the side, you know, the shape of the rink is always the same. And and a lot of hockey, a lot about hockey is about math and and trajectories towards the net and what's effective to the net. I talk a lot about categories of the zone and the offensive zone and faces of the net. So constantly manipulating those zones and trying to get a better face of the net. And that's a kind of a simple form to break it down to. And you start thinking about like that, you, you can start, you know, planning things out once you get over the blue line of getting this threatening areas of the ice. And I think once you understand, you know, these categories, you break them down into categories. Now you break them down into smaller pieces of the ice that you have to learn to, 
I don't want to say conquer, but understand fully the time and space of it. So if you can understand these categories each individually, you can understand the risk and reward of things. You can understand what works. You can understand the timing component in a smaller piece. And then you start, you know, then they learn how to do it from the next category of the zone. So it's not so much of the whole zone. You're really getting good in certain little small areas, right? And that builds confidence. And then that starts to open up players' minds. And I don't know if that's a, if that makes sense to you or not, but it's when I, when I break it down through a video and I have a screen in front, I can really break those details down for the player and show them and walk them right through. So it's, it's not something where it's a flyby, mention it to the player and hopefully grabs it out with, with the client that I have. I'll make sure I walk them through and they totally understand. I say, you see now you move three feet this way. You see the face of the net in this category. Okay. You see the defenseman stick, that sort of thing, really break down the why of it and the details of it. And then it really becomes like, oh, wow, that's easier than I thought versus trying to go all over the offensive zone and figure something out or try to find something or, you know, not have a game plan, so to speak. Um, this gives them a game plan and, and kind of, a you know, the why of why it works, you know, why why certain things are effective to the net or what they can do in their game. Because sometimes what I find, too, it's we watch the higher end guys and we say, do what that guy does. Well, there's a lot more detail that goes into it than that. (laughs) And there, you know, you don't just go from, you know, zero to 10, like that fast. There's there's plenty of uh, stepping stones to get to that, you know, really high level stuff and it's achievable. And, And sometimes I'd say, you know, like to your point where you said something along the lines of, you know, some players have it, some players don't, you can teach players to a certain level and some players might not, get to that high end offensive level, but they can definitely build on their offense. They shouldn't just shut down their offensive thought process and only think, you know, one side of the puck. Um, sometimes you might be limited, you know, you might not have the best hands or whatnot, and you should play a little bit safer, make better decisions. But again, when you break the ice down for them, they understand when's the time to challenge and when's the time to, you know, pull back, play safe or, um, you know, that sort of thing. Long story long a little bit, but I hope that that made sense. No, and one thing that you and I talked about when we had a chat the other day was manipulating defensemen and manipulating goaltenders. Talk a little bit about, well, I guess that's a general evolution of the game. I mean, you and I are roughly the same age. We just remember some guys were better on offense, and they were skating by defensemen, and as long as they didn't get hooked too much, they were getting to the spots (laughs) they wanted to to make things happen on offense. Now, with the fluidity of these defenders who are getting bigger, but they're not losing speed now, in that, and especially with goaltenders, too, where the last podcast guest we had was Shane Clifford, who's a goalie coach, and he talked about there's something like a 97% save percentage when goalies are square, set, and face a shot. So talk a little bit about what you've been trying to preach to your players about manipulating defenders, manipulating goaltenders to create some of those angles that you're talking about. Yeah. So what I talk a lot about is, is seeing, so understanding these spaces and these categories very fully. So when, so what happens when you understand the space very well and the categories of the zone and the faces of the net theory is a defender now becomes a smaller problem for you. And you, you're thinking past that problem instead of him being, you know, and I, I watched and I used this analogy before, but I watched this movie patch Adams and there's a guy in there that uses this theory of when you stare at the fingers, you look at it, how many do you see? And the people keep looking at it and they see four. When you look through the fingers or past the fingers, what happens is you start to see more solutions through this problem. It's not four fingers. You actually see more fingers and you see more solutions through the problem. So when you can understand the 
faces of the net theory and the categories its own thing. So what happens now, the defenders began to become less of a problem. You see more solutions to get what you want out of these situations. And that's better. That's a more confident feeling than when you stare at the problem, the defender, and you just see like, I got to get rid of it. I panic. I don't want to turn it over. When you, when you come into it with a different mindset of like, he's just a small spectacle, you know, issue for you. I want to get this out of this situation. It just, it changes your mindset. And then you start to manipulate those situations uh, to, to get a better result out of it, so to speak. Um, and that's, that's something I try to work with the players on and make them understand that fully. So that's now you have a control and, you know, hockey's a lot of, it's a lot of mental and it's a lot of confidence and it's a lot of, you know, when you have the puck knowing what you can get out of a situation versus guessing. And, you know, when you're guessing, you're worried about turning over, you're worried about not executing and instead of I'm going to bury this thing or I'm going to find the backdoor tap in. Uh, it's a much different mentality. Right. So with the stat that you used is what we talked about that making the goalie move small little details about planning your routes out in these categories of these zones to, to get the goalie to move. And that's the main thing on offense. And I think it's lost a lot and not talked about enough is actually like manipulation of the goaltender and where to get to, to do that. And sometimes it doesn't take a miracle cross ice sauce pass three feet in the air from one dot to the other. Sometimes it's like a five or six foot pass that that five or six foot pass changes the face of the net so drastically that it's such a tough, tough save for the goaltender. And that's a much easier pass as a, as a player to make, and you can do that over and over again. So now if we start talking about line combinations, if me and another guy in the line understand that together, we start working together to help each other and get closer to each other. Instead of you're coming down the right side and I'm going to go all the way down the back door on the left side and try to drive the back post. I'm more trying to get over to you on the right side and be a five to six foot pass where again, that pass gets to me and I have a great a shot on net. You start raising your percentages of, of execution. And it's, I think it's um, in that when you think about it in that light, it just makes it simpler and much more obtainable to be effective offensively. Um, you know, and that's, that's something really try to, again, through video, it's a, it's a lot easier to, to show and diagram than I guess on a podcast, but you know, it's, it's really been doing well with the players and it really, it really resonates well with them when they see it, them doing it too. Not, not an NHL clip of, you know, whoever named insert whatever name you want there. But when you when you get their game clips and show them where they could be going, it's more so now it's a thing where you're building pitcher memory for that player. And when they're going out in their game, they've studied that situation and it clicks to them. And it's now something they've seen three, four, ten times. And again, pitcher memory is huge because then it becomes something where you're not having to take the moment to process. It already has been processed. You've seen the picture, you know what the execution looks like, and now you're doing it faster. And when you can process and execute faster, you become a high-end player. And that's, you know, to take it to a different direction where Connor McDavid, he processes so fast and executes so fast. And that's what his God, you know, that's what his gift is, um, is that. So, I can't say that we're going to make a bunch of Connor McDavid, but that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's only one Connor McDavid. I mean, I know <laughs> just the the physicality of the skating uh, with Connor McDavid. Nathan McKinnon pops off the screen too. Kale McCarr, Jack Eichel. I just the physicality of the skating. But then McDavid puts it together with how he attacks and how his yeah, hands sick. go as fast as his feet. It's, it's so good. Yeah, it's so it's, so it's just really fun to watch. No, you yeah. talked a little bit about picture memory, and I imagine that's something that you try and when you're breaking down in your base elements, when you're going through it with a player, it's 
you freeze it. It's like, okay, you know, and the same thing I try and tell you know, with the high school team when we're watching film, it's like, try and put yourself back in this situation. If you remember these plays, put yourself there. Like you're seeing it again. Now let's diagnose what we're seeing. Let's diagnose and get some ideas about how we can do this better. And then making sure we put it in action the next time you see it, if that hits. So talk a little bit more about the picture, uh, the picture memory concept. Yeah, the picture memory concept is huge. It's something I've executed my whole career. That's what I used to get better at hockey starting at 10 years old. And back, you know, not that I'm that old, but it was not a time with video and stuff. I, I remember seeing the highlights and I would remember them like Mark Messier's right wing snapshot coming down the right wing and scoring on Marty Bredor. I I pictured that and did that repeat. I kept doing it until I got unbelievable at it. No, I shouldn't say it like that, but until I could do it really well. Um, I would just admit and imagine it in my head and just keep doing it. I got to a point where I could hit 13 inches every single time. And then go to another situation that I used to like Sergei Fedorov coming down the right side. He came up with hit a pause. He faked a pass and with shelf on Kolzig. I just kept remembering that scenario. And I got to a point where I practiced that. So, you know, that picture memory was, is something now in a game situation, same scenario. So if it's something we teach in the clip in the video, I also recommend we go, like, now you start practicing with a purpose. You go out on the ice the next time you're on the ice at practice and you start imagining this situation. So imagine coming down the right wing flying down the right wing and you want to get to a better category of the zone. You fake like you're going to drive to the right, you turn to the left and you get to the face-off dot and you imagine the stick's going to be a problem and you try to figure out where would you shoot this puck and use your imagination. There's not going to be anybody else out there on the ice, but you got to get good at it when there's nobody on the ice before you can be great at it when there's people on the ice. So that imagination piece of it is, is something I think is really important to try to help players see that not going out on the ice mindless in practice, when you're in practice and you have that ice time to get better, it's using picture memory and imagining these scenarios. And then, um, again, then when they present themselves in a game, for me personally, that's when I got to a game, it, it, to be honest, it gave me easy. As soon as I came off the half wall, as soon as I got to a certain point, I already imagined that situation of ripping a clapper just outside the faceoff dot and going elbow down a million times. When it came to a game, that defenseman standing in front of me was not a problem. I saw past the problem. And it was now just about me executing. Uh, it gave me a lot of comfort in that situation. It didn't give me any, it took away the guessing. Um, and that's something I think every, I think everybody can do. I can't say that everybody can perfect it per se, but it helps you get better as a hockey player. When, when you see these scenarios, use picture, you know, use video and then use picture imagination when you get on the ice to practice with a purpose. It's kind of a, you know, that's the stepping stone. How do I get better at this? This is my recommendation. That's what worked for me personally. And, and a lot of people, when you hear them talk about it, they, that's how they practice and it's with a purpose and re and recreating situations uh, that are realistic. You know, it's not so much, you know, if I want you to get better doing a half wall shot and walking off that lane, I'm not going to have you ripping clappers from the red line. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm going to have you come off the half wall on the right side and get good at that. So very specific stuff. Um, and then once you can get a player that's comfortable doing, you know, two or three things very, very well, it's a best, the confidence level goes higher and then other things start to evolve around that. And, you know, that's, that's kind of how I try to build players up and give them, you know, start with one thing. Then we go to the next thing, make them really good at the next thing, get two or three things that they can, I wouldn't say perfect, but be very comfortable in and understanding the whole, the whole picture of it. Uh, things kind of doors open for them, so to speak in their, in their creativity. And talk about, uh, 
your company, 44 Vision, of how you guys work within a team concept and how you market to individual teams as a supplement to the coaching that they're getting. A lot of coaches are egotistical. They're like, well, I know what I'm doing, but your program is designed really to help out teams through the things we've been talking about and individual uh, offensive work uh, player to player. Yeah, absolutely. So what we do is we have a, a cast of coaches that work with teams, um, organizations and teams and build help build out practice plans and build out help with their development. And it's and it's something along the lines, a little bit more personalized, where they're also watching game film with the coaches and breaking it down. So it's not so much of here's a bunch of, you know, here's a booklet, do this and it's going to work. It's more the coaches watch what the team has and what's on the roster and then help the coach with certain drill plans practice plans and those sort of things that gear towards helping the team get better. Because you know what, in youth hockey, it changes a lot. Like one year you might have three or four studs. The next year might be a little bit, you know, you have one or two studs and it's maybe needs to be more of a defensive model or different structure to it. than you know, just one, one booklet copy paste for everybody. So it's more where the coaches go in there and help those specific teams, watch the film of the teams and see what they need work on, whether it's angling, for checking neutral zone regroups and then help the coach with practice plans that are realistic, you know, and towards helping opening those doors for, for, for the team. Because the other thing too, is a lot of coaching, it's volunteer. They have, you know, they have jobs and they're very busy. So sometimes you're driving to the rink after a nine to five job you're from six o'clock, you're trying to um, put a practice plan together. You don't know what you're going to do that night. And um, you know, you kind of just throw a smorgasbord together. So, we got some, you know, great coaches coming on board. Uh, you know, Steve Peters is a guy who's Arizona Coyotes for a long time. We have um, Danny Savret. We have some great coaches on the women's side. Brianna Jenner, Adam Redmond's a guy coming on board to help with these coaches and help them have that support system and and help development. And that's something we're really passionate about. And it's great that the coaches are volunteering somewhere where we want to help you know, just be a support beam to the, to the growth of the, of the players. And I think from my experience and through the game, it's, it's been a little bit of that where it's, it's almost like one pamphlet for everybody. I, I just don't agree with it. I think each team's unique and sometimes it needs to have some flexibility, uh, flexibility to it on how you approach the kids and what you're teaching them and what they're lacking in their game structure. Um, and that's a piece that we wanted to take care of. And that's what we built out as, a, as a, again, a, a, a little, stable of coaches to support that. And there, you know, there is some feedback like that where it's, why do we need your help? Well, we just want to help. We want the players to get good. So it's, it's one thing. Cause the thing is that when you give a one pamphlet and one booklet and, and that's what we're all doing, some players don't fit to it. So what happens to them is they lose confidence. They don't, you know, they don't grow and they don't succeed and they have to revolve around that. What do you call it? booklet of, you know, booklet of drills or booklet of, systems maybe you know maybe if you implemented a different system to it this team they would have let's say i want to say more success because that's not what it's about they would have better growth in their players individually it's in hopefully that's a good snippet of it but that's that's the idea of it and that's what we're doing right now is implementing that and with organizations who are you know wanting that support for the coaching staff and it's it's somewhere where i think the parents can also have some comfort knowing you know, there's some great minds behind it and great, uh, great people with really cool resumes that are there to help support the growth of their, their son or daughter. 
And I'm glad you mentioned your staff. And before we get into more of the details on the diversity of your staff and the talent of your staff, one of the players on your staff, former players, is Craig Cunningham, someone we know very well here in Tucson um, for the inaugural season of the Roadrunners and uh, working uh, with the Coyotes like he was doing. So talk to us about your relationship with Craig Cunningham. I grew up uh, in the, through pro playing against County. He was a great player, unbelievable character guy, great grit. And I got a chance, um, you know, he when we developed this platform, um, Cunny was interested in coming on and absolutely open. I had a great conversation with him, great introduction, and he was awesome. He's he's uh, he's such a great person, and he's a great hockey mind as well. He's very passionate, and the way he could articulate his knowledge of the game to players was amazing, uh, is amazing. He's, he does great work and he's, again, his passion comes out and his character comes out when he's teaching and giving back to players. It's amazing. He, he was really a heart and soul guy when he played. And it's something that I, I really envied about him and to have him on the platform. So I, I, I can, I love the fact that a character guy like that, he was a captain anywhere he went in his career. And that's something that, you know, that speaks volumes. Um, it wasn't a one-time thing where he got a C slapped on his jersey. He wore the C four or five times through his career. So he's he's an amazing person to have for young players as a mentor as well, not just for hockey, but in life in general and as a person on how to how to carry yourself as a pro. And on Tucson, that was a brand new team in 2016. He was pretty much immediately named the captain of that team. And just to speak to your leadership qualities. And again, someone who's very inspirational and well-known here, he came out to one of my eight U practices a couple of years ago and stayed, talked to every kid, took pictures with anyone who wanted him. And just, no, just still someone who will, his name and his number are still in the rafters at the arena here for the Roadrunners and rightfully so. So, uh, but let's talk about some of the other members of the staff you have. You mentioned um, a lot of longtime pros in the women's game. Uh, talk a little bit about branching out into the women's game and getting uh, former Olympians and collegiate players to join your staff and some of the perspective they bring. Yes, that's uh, something I'm, I'm extremely passionate about is, is helping, you know, uh, put my hand in, into that section of the of the game, the women's game, and help develop that and create opportunities for these women. I think, um, you know, they are absolutely brilliant hockey minds. And from my, from what I saw in the picture, personally, I didn't see a lane or an avenue for them to, to, um, to take it to the next level, so to speak, and, and be involved in, in I, w- I don't want to go that too far, but like financially, almost like there was no lane for them to go. So I thought of the beginning of how to create a lane for these ex- hockey experts to be compensated for their, you know, their sacrifice, their knowledge, their, um, their knowledge of the game. How do we get that back into the game to grow the game? And it's got to be, it can't be, you know, it's nice to do things on by, by volunteering, so to speak, but it also, you have to be able to make a living. Right. So I want to create a lane for the women. And I thought what the women's game personally was that that's what that needed was that knowledge and experience getting circled, circulated back into the game. How do we do that? And how, how could we do it on a scaled level? And I, you know, I just started talking to these, um, you know, to the women's players, Rebecca Johnson, Amanda Palkey, Brianna Decker, the girls that we have on Blake Bolden, they're all amazing girls, amazing people. And I, and I mentioned this, this platform of what I was up to as far as coaching and how I thought that would be a great way to grow the game and also be able to, to, you know, make some money out of it, so to speak. 
and they were really excited about doing it. And now it's been, a, it's been a great, uh, it's been a great division. I, I don't know how to say it, but that's starting to really take uh, a hold because those girls are great mentors for these young girls. And now what we're starting to do is get 12, 13, 14 year old girls, some high end knowledge from experienced players that are at the Olympic level, the top levels of the game, teaching your daughter and giving them great, like the, the knowledge is what's important. That's what the game needs is growth, right? Like I think from, from my point of view, when you look at the men's game, you see guys like Vinny LeCavier, Marty St. Louis, like these high-end guys are coaching boys hockey, Wee Bantam hockey level. And that knowledge is getting back into the game, right? That's huge for those, that growth of those, those organizations that are fortunate enough to have those pro guys teach. Now at the women's side, I, I didn't see that much of it. And now that's where, what we're doing. And growing the game. I think when we get it, my vision of it personally is five, you know, five, 10 years down the road, say we have, we create four or five, 600 high end level girls. You start talking about two pro leagues, not just one. And that's sustainable. And it gives girls a chance, an opportunity to play high level hockey and stay in the game and not have to be done after college. If they don't make the Olympic team that, you know, that's, that's really how it goes. Now they almost have to, um, they, they're limited options. So we want to help develop that. And we, we have some awesome coaches, They're really great, not only people, but hockey minds, they're brilliant and they, they are experts in this space. So it's a, it's a huge resource for, to grow that game. And, and, uh, I'm passionate about it and I, I hope we can, you know, do big things in the women's game. That's, that's a big piece for me. I wanted to open up opportunities for them and, and, and grow the game of hockey on a whole, as a whole. And we have a great example out here with Lindsay Fry, uh, Olympian played at Harvard, uh, is the color commentator on the radio for the Coyotes now helps run with along with Matt Schott, the Arizona Kachinas program that has just been taking off and has gotten a lot more participation here in Arizona, not only with the girls numbers, but uh, the numbers in whole here are on a rise. So hockey definitely on the rise here. And one thing I, I say too, we do film sessions with one of our high school teams is we'll watch film of them and then I'll flip over and we'll throw on an NHL game and it's, even though there are things that are different, it's 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 one of the things I like about hockey is it's really the same game. No matter what level you're playing at, sure, there are things that are bigger, faster, stronger, different attack angles because of the level of competition you're playing against. But you can throw on tape of one of the high school teams and you can throw on tape of an NHL game going on. It's can you win on the wall? Is your passing have proper kind of pace and distance on it so that your winger breaking out catches it at speed. Uh, you test the integrity of the defense in the middle, you swing wide and you get an inside net drive. You get a third guy high and especially in defensive zone concepts too. It's okay. You were close to somebody, but you got caught watching the puck and you drifted a stride away from them. And that's the distance they needed to beat you to the spot or to get a stick on a puck. So talk about, what you've seen in the girls game and maybe some of these things you're seeing too about you can watch film of 12, 13, 14 year olds. You can watch film with the pros and you're really probably teaching some of the same things, even though the angles might be different. The concepts are relatively the same. Absolutely. And I think, you know, kind of with that's the kind of, um, the idea of the game that the nets are in the same place and the rink is the same shape it's, it applies, it's applicable to all ages. You know, there's certain things, you know, we talk about 11U or 12U defense, defensive girl going back to get the puck and doing things like shoulder checking to see what her options are, those small details or using the net for puck protection or excuse me, using the net for, 
for for protection against forechecking and changing the angles, changing the dynamics, using that net protection. Um, these small details, they all they they apply to whether you like you just said an NHL level or it's a U twelve U twelve level. I think what you what you see, you know, obviously at the top level or at the Olympic you know, women's level, things are much more organized and happen faster. But it's a lot of the same little details, you know, and that's what's important getting these details of the game to the players at a younger age, they start to advance them fast, you know, they advance faster. Um, I think in today's game, it's gotten a lot of skill development has happened in the game. Um, very, very much so the, the game overall is more skilled than it's ever been. Like, I think you see social media, there's a million videos out there of kind of the same drills and the science still stick handling. But it, um, what's, what's most important is like the hockey IQ of where the stuff applies. And that's, that's something where, you know, our level of coaches is really unique because it's, you know, they've, they've come from experience at the highest levels of, you know, been on a two-on-one in an Olympic game, gold medal game. They played, you know, played a two-on-one at the NHL level defensively or those sort of things. So these details and those little, those little, those little details are coming from experience and you know what I mean, where they apply, what's really important. And if you can, get details to those kids at 12, 13, I think I'm kind of circling around with the same speak, but like the younger you can get that information to them and help them execute it at a high, uh, you know, get better at those things, the faster they get better. Now you're talking about not just skilled players at 15, 16, but they're also effective. And, you know, when they're doing their, whatever they're doing on the ice is to, to execute. And it's not for, you know, sometimes I see game clips and it's you guys are stick handling, 30, 40 times and there's not a player anywhere near him. You stick handle to beat somebody. <laughs> it's not to like show, you know, Patrick Kane does a stick handle for show. He does it to beat a defender and execute a play. So, um, you know, to, to watch different levels of hockey, it is, it is exciting because like you said, it, it's, it's a lot of the same. It's just different pace and a little, just a little tweak here and there of what the outcomes are. But, um, you know, the details are a lot of the same. I can almost hear the eye rolls from my defenseman when you talk about using the net for puck protection, shoulder check, and specific things, and they're probably rolling their eyes because they hear that from me a lot. Even watching tape, when you talk about precise details, it's you need to be off this right side post when you get the D to D reversal. That way you can force the second four checker to either follow you around the net or try and dive hard to the other side of the net and you can come around the other side. It's especially watching film, it's off a of face-off. It's you're here, you need to be here. And the distances don't seem very big, but it's one stride here or there. When you break down tape, it's, all right, let's watch the next two strides. So now we freeze it here. Now this defenseman is pushed a little further. This four checker is pushed a little further for the wall. You pick your head up, you manipulate this guy into diving to the boards. It creates a lane up the middle. So just to hear... uh no, another high level coach and player like yourself talk about those things. And it's, I, I think my kids are going to be like, Oh no, we're going to hear it more now. Now that coach Ryan heard it from Rob Trent <laughs> talking about these things, we're going to hear it a lot. Sorry, more. boys. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth though. It is, you know, it changes a lot. It, you know, you use net protection. I said it in the beginning, it's a lot about math and uh, you know, and how to use a certain angles and change angles and certain angles are effective. Certain angles the wrong angles turn into pizzas and they turn into turnovers and they put you in bad positions because the shape of the rink is this is the same. It's not going to move. The walls aren't going to move and certain things will put you in trouble. 
and using the net to change the angles of the way guys can come at you is huge. And it's, it's, it's free. Um, you know, it's one thing to come up the ice and have to, you know, juke a guy out and shimmy shake and use shoulder and backhand toe drag. That's hard to do. What's not hard to do is use the freebies. And I talk a lot about that, taking what's free. The net's going to be there and it's going to protect you always. So use it. And when you can manipulate four checkers by using that, I, I just, it's, it's so effective. And you see the guys that do it very well. They're unbelievable. Like you hear people talk about how easy the game is for them. It really is because they shake that pressure off early and they have four or five, six seconds to make a tape to tape pass. Now, if you learn puck protection first, and you can't make a tape-to-tape pass from 10, 15 feet. So at least we taught you the net protection. Now we'll teach you how to pass tape-to-tape. <laughs> but the thing is, you don't understand. So there's the two variables, using that protection. And now it's how do I make a tape-to-tape? How do I lead a player with a pass? So those, see how you break those things down. And I think, you know, you break them down simple like that. You can start to build a player out. And it's much more obtainable. Um, it's not so like, how did they do that? It's like, this is how they did it. That net protection, you know, for them to roll – roll their eyes. I'm trying to give you as a coach back up here, <laughs> but it's, it's just so effective and it always will be that way um, because of the angles, unless they change the shape of the rink. And then we can start talking about different ways to escape because you'll have more room back there. But as it sits now, it is that way. And like a strong side face off, we're looking out towards the neutral zone. If you're looking from the crease out, the puck comes on the left side. If it comes out and you're that inside defenseman, if you go around that post you just put yourself in a bad angle because that winger is going to come around the net and you're stuck on the side where the puck came from, right? Where if you come to the near side post and you give that close support, now the winger is going to chase you around the net. If he doesn't chase you around the net, he's got to go in front of the net. You can stop. and You have that window of two or three seconds to make a decision versus going you know, going the, around the post. You can wind up getting smoked. You're going to turn the puck over. It's going to stay in your zone for 30 seconds, and that sucks. Um, excuse my language. But – you know, those certain things are, are effective and they always will be. Um, so it's it's just really about accepting them and, and kind of perfecting them. And sometimes learning those small things, perfecting them, makes it does. It makes the game super simple. Watch a guy like Ryan Suter, how simple he makes the game with small details. Simple first passes, shoulder checking, always having information, knowing where people are coming from. So he's never surprised by a four checker. He almost has control of the four checker every single time. And then making simple first passes. And I think go back a little bit further time, it's Chris Pronger, one of the best players, you know, I think to ever do it back there. His, he had he created so much off of using the net for protection and making a good first pass. And I'd be really interested to see how many second assists that he got off of first passes from behind his own net of using net protection and then simply stepping out and hitting the right guy at the right time and starting the playoff. And it's, it's uh, you know, once you learn that too as a defenseman, you start to give your team comfort and predictability. And then the forwards can start taking routes where they know you're going to do, you know, certain things. And they get in a certain area, they're going to get the puck. And then they can start pre-planning their routes and execution on, on getting out of the zone and attacking. Versus you never know what your defenseman is going to do. So as a winger, do you go? Do you stay? Do you get closer? Do you get further away? It causes a little bit of kind of guessing and that's you know when you start guessing with each other on the ice it's a five-man unit you guys kind of have to have some predictability to each other's games and and chemistry so to speak um you can build that with small little habits like this that's a really long story long i apologize but like that hopefully that hammers the point home for those guys because sometimes just keep it simple 
um, is easier. No, and little things are big things is the skills coach for the junior coyotes, who was a former captain of the university of Arizona team said when I had him on the podcast talking about adding up these little things. And that's something we talk about with our teams is you have to add up all these little things over the course of a game. And then that's going to dictate what the scoreboard looks like is not just if you're bigger and faster, you get to skate through everybody. It's what are the little things we're doing? Is our body in the right position? Are we moving fast enough? Uh, short passes are good things as long as we're both skating. You know, you don't have to stretch it out. But no, I give my kids a lot of credits, even though I joke, is they're the ones who wanted to do film. And even though it's Arizona, we do it outside on a, on a projector uh, to keep everybody distanced. And they show up here and they're putting it into use. And it's and it, uh, it's something I've seen and I haven't done with any teams until this year. But it's something that it's really raised the hockey IQ of the whole group. And I have 12 skaters. Five of them are female. So we're, it's, uh, and everybody's here and learning from films, putting it into practice. And it's something I'm very proud of as a coach is how they're working on the IQ side of the game, because we only practice once a week and it hasn't been every week and have to drive two hours to do it. And then you go play. It's not like we've had a lot of practice time where we can hammer these things on the ice over and over again, because we practice three or four times during the week. No, I'm 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 always ho- I'm always happy to talk shop and talk angles and talk about puck protection and escape. I mean, that's to me that's the most important play is when the puck's in your own end. Can you escape with it? Can you win on the wall with body position? Can you create a good lane with creativity for your next forward to pick it up and then go attack? I mean, to me, that's still the most important play in hockey is getting the puck from your own end to theirs. And uh, again, something you can't harp on enough as a coach, but. Well, let's uh, no. That we've we've gone through uh, talking about a lot of technical terms in the game. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about with you is your hockey career. You were drafted in the first round by Edmonton, twenty fifth overall, back in two thousand four. But you grew up playing in upstate New York and got to play a lot of hockey in a lot of different places. So just talk about your kind of hockey upbringing. What was it about hockey that specifically interests you, and how your career kind of progressed as a junior player? and culminating in a Memorial cup championship with the London Knights. Yeah. My, my, uh, growing up in small town, Fulton, New York, we played, you know, winter time came around is playing, played hockey is cold up there, the snow belt. And, uh, you know, just kind of grew up till about 10 years old, really just playing in those local little areas, small towns is kind of, I would call it, it was travel hockey, but not triple a hockey, so to speak of traveling around and going far away to play the big tournament for us was going actually to the Pepsi center in Buffalo or the Pepsi tournament in Buffalo and getting to go to a Sabres game every year. And that was like our big trip and a lot of fun. And, um, you know, not till about 11, 12 years old, I really started to pick it up and had a huge passion for it. I had a big growth spurt and, and really advanced in the game. And a big, big credit of that is a guy named Don Kernan came into my hometown and took over the rink and, uh, I was a little rink rat at that time. I loved the rink before that, but when he took over, I I don't know what it was. I, he told me, said, anytime you want to use the ice, you're free to. And he meant that. And I, I took it. uh, I took it. What's the right word? I I took advantage of it. (laughs) So I'd be out on the ice between Zamboni cuts. You know, the Zamboni guy would just kick me off. He'd be out doing the ice and I'd be shooting pucks against the glass or whatever. And uh, you know, again, I just kind of advanced and like 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, Got kind of on the radar a little bit. Got a chance to go play in the Pee Wee uh, Tourney D Quebec tournament. Uh, that was a huge thing. Really kind of opened my eyes to where 
what kind of level I was at, I guess, you know, I come from a small town kid. I didn't really know where I stood a lot. I, you know, my name was on the radar. People were talking. We didn't know anything about hockey, really, to be honest with you. My dad played basketball and, and football, baseball sort of thing, never played hockey. So we didn't know the hockey world, so to speak. And then that turning to Quebec really opened our eyes to, you know, what other levels were out there. And, and that's when we started taking a little bit more serious. I stopped playing other sports at 13, uh, 12 and started playing summer hockey in, in Montreal and a guy named Dave Harash. It was just a lot of fun. You know, for me, it was a ton of fun. There was no pressure on it. I didn't have any expectations out of the game. I just, I just absolutely loved hockey and loved going and scoring goals. I loved getting, you know, I love practicing. I love getting better. I love trying things. And, you know, I started basically playing lacrosse on the ice with a hockey stick. And that was like a new category for me and a new challenge. And it, it seemed to, uh, you know, I'd be honest with you guys, even as a young kid, I was an entertainer, you know, even before I was any good at sports, I would be entertaining the family at the Christmas parties and stuff and jumping around doing John Claude Van Van Damme splints from the top rope and that kind of thing. So, you know, that kind of carried over into my hockey and I started again playing lacrosse when I, with a hockey stick and then uh, played tier two junior in Syracuse. That was a huge thing for me, not having to leave home to get high level hockey. Um, and then from there I got drafted into Mississauga and the OHL. I got on the radar there. I was the first overall pick to Mississauga and, uh, moved up to Canada. And it was, you know, kind of from there, just making our way towards a pro career. It was awesome. I got a chance to play for Steve Ludzig in Mississauga. Then I got to move over to London, play with some amazing people, played for the Hunter brothers, which are really brilliant hockey people and learned a lot about the game and learned you know a lot about what it took to be a pro and, uh, fortunate enough to be drafted in the first round of the Edmonton Oilers. That was an experience and, and, and learned a lot there with, with their rich history. And, and, you know, the journey took off from there left at 15 and it just seemed like a roller, you know, one big roller coaster, um, ride through Western Canada, through, you know, Europe played in Latvia, met my wife there, married and have a daughter now Stella. So it's, it's been a whirlwind since 15, but hockey's taught me so much about a lot of things about life, about myself, about, uh, you know, seeing the game, even the game. So I get to learn the game from, you know, the highest level, pretty much every league in the world, play the NHL, AHL, KHL, the Swedish hockey league, um, Switzerland, Germany. And I got to see a lot of stuff. So the games brought me a ton of things and it's, it's been a hell of a ride and uh, met some great people through the way. So I try to keep, I can go on and on with stories. (laughs) I try to make it short as possible for you, but I mean, it's been, it's been a whirlwind since 15 and it's been really cool. Met some, again, met some great people and had some great experiences. And, you know, now that I get to be in this role of, of kind of passing on that experience and knowledge to other players and opening, you know, you know, opening what I experienced to them and helping them through their journeys. It's been, a, it's been a really cool uh, full circle thing. Well, uh, just a couple of the highlights. So we mentioned the Memorial cup in London. Talk to us a little bit about that and what you remember about the intensity of those games and how it compares to, some of the other things you were in, you played in the World Juniors twice as well, and you played in the NHL, you played in the KHL, you played in the SHL. Talk about first the Memorial Cup and what that atmosphere is like. Yeah, that was the Memorial Cup was amazing. You know, we had a we had a huge, a big year that year. That year we started out the season thirty one games right out of the gate without being beaten, thirty one games undefeated. Um, it was a wild, you know, wild thing. That year was a lockout year. So there was no NHL hockey and there was a ton of a uh, ton of eyes on us because we came out with that start, we, you know, being in the OHL Canadian hockey market is huge. 
And people started to gravitate towards it. Like we started noticing on the road, you got 10, 11, 12 games into that winning streak. And we were selling out buildings on the road that usually didn't have a ton of fans at their home games. So then it got to the point of, you know, towards the end of the year, come more cup time, Sidney Crosby's team got really hot and they were on fire as well. And he was such a phenom. Uh, there was, you know, there was a lot of great, what's the energy around that? A lot of talk about the London Knights and talking about Sidney Crosby and, and can Crosby take down the Knights and can the Knights handle Crosby? And it was almost pre-set up, you know, we hadn't even gotten to the tournament yet. And it was already kind of seen, you know, a lot of uh, media and stuff on it. So being at that young age too, and, and being in the media stuff, it's cool, right? Like come from a small town of 10, 15,000 people, Fulton, New York. And now we're talking about being a national newspapers and doing interviews and doing all this stuff. And it was really cool. It was a lot of, a lot of emotions, a lot of cool things. Um, and then it came to the tournament time and it was pressure cooker. We played them the first game of the tournament and Crosby came out in the first 10 minutes and did three unbelievable plays. And I'll never forget it. It was like, Holy crap. Like it, all three of the plays, nobody was wrong on our team in the sense of like missed coverage or, you know what I mean? Like he just did three unbelievable things that nobody could defend. And we were just, we were a confident team. It didn't shake us per se. We just kind of were like, okay. And from the 10 minute mark in the first period, they didn't get a shot on net until five minutes left in the second period. We put our boots back on. We crawled back into the game, tied it up three, three, and we ended up winning in overtime. And then from there, that moment kind of led us, we were speaking from my experience. We knew we were going to win because they, they got, they got up on us. Not, no other team had done that really come out and put us on our heels and put us down three, nothing the whole year. And they did it and they had a pretty mountain of a team and we came back. So it gave us a lot of confidence. And then, you know, the final game of the tournament, we, Dale Hunter, such a competitor, put a, put a checking line on, on Sydney and Sydney didn't get three feet of ice the whole game. And we shut him down completely. I don't know if he even got, you know, maybe he had a shot or two on net and we won four nothing and we got to do it in London uh, home hosted the Memorial cup and then won the Memorial cup. And the other thing that was great about it too, is we went through the front door, right? Like, so when you host the Memorial cup, you get an automatic bid into the tournament and some teams lose first round playoffs and they get like a month and a half off and get the rest and get ready for, a, you know, uh, a round Robin tournament, so to speak. And it's, so it's a pressure cooker like that with that Memorial cup, you, you know, if you have a bad week and a half, you had a great season, you can have a bad week and a half and come out with nothing. Right. Um, so to do it at home, go to the front door and then be able to celebrate with a city. That's amazing for, for hockey, great fans. Um, it was, it was such an electric feeling. And, you know, two days after three days after the championship, we had a parade of like 80,000 people downtown London. I mean, we're 18 year old kids and we're getting this kind of, a, it was, it was just so surreal. It was unbelievable. Uh, and you know, when you win championships together, you're a brotherhood for life. And it's, you know, even going through my pro career, guys are like cut the cord shrimpy like you're not in London anyway it's like I'll never cut the cord <laughs> I'll never forget those times and I'll, I'll always wish I was back there and with that same group of guys it'll never it'll never go away so I mean it, it, it was amazing to do it and it was uh you know the year before we fell short we lost in the Western Conference Finals so it went from that year being really disappointed to seeing what it took to execute and actually follow through with a with a good team and win it was it was such a great lesson personally, and for us as, as young men starting our careers to learn what it took to win uh, was something special and great group of guys. And, and we did it with Corey Perry, David Bull and Brandon Pruss, Danny Sivret. Like there were some great players, Danny Fritch, you go down the list. There were some really great hockey players, Dan Girardi. Um, we had a great cast of players and, and 
man, it was a lot of fun. And around that same time, you got to wear the red, white, and blue and play in the World Juniors twice. Uh, talk about that experience and what it what it felt like to put on the Team USA sweater and go out and play for your country. It's truly an honor, and it's amazing because you know it's it's something where you, it's there's some anxiousness to it as well because you got to get picked for the team and, and something where everybody's off playing in their own. You know, some guys are college, some guys are whatever, USHL or wherever they may be, OHL. And, and it's kind of you're sitting around waiting for that roster to get picked. So it's one of those I'd say anxious things. But you you want to make that team, you know, that's you want to be known as one of the top players in the world at that time, especially you got, you know, World Juniors is right there and right there also is the NHL draft. So that World Juniors piece is kind of lets you know where you stand in, in people's eyes. So when you finally get that call, it's something of uh you're super proud to represent your country, super proud to be a top 23 player at that age level. And then to get a chance to go and showcase and, and, and challenge yourself against the best in the world uh, at the U20 level. It's amazing. Uh, and then when you get there, it's, 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 it happens fast. It's such a quick tournament. It's a two, two and a half week tournament, I believe is a time frame. two week tournament. It's pressure cooker. You know, you don't have much room and, you're, and much time to click and bond as, as a team or, you know, not just that, but also systems, you know, everybody's coming from, most guys are coming from 23 different teams, right? Some, some guys may play together. I don't think we really did. The two years I played, I don't remember having teammates, but it's, it's a pressure cooker to kind of bond and figure out a way to come together and try to win a championship for, for your country and again, compete at the highest level. So it was, it was really fun. Um, one year was in North Dakota and we fell short, took fourth place. Unfortunately, that was a year of like Canada's super team. Um, also interesting being there, having Danny Surratt, Corey Perry playing for Canada and having that, you know, as teammates want to, you know, you go from that to like wanting to beat them. It's such a, you know, a different feeling and emotion. And then when we were out, it's sending somewhere where you're pulling for your teammates again, you know, your brothers. Uh, really cool. The next year was in Vancouver. I uh, had a really stacked team. It was just one of those things again, where it was a short window to click and we didn't. And uh, fell short of our goal, but it was, it's such an honor to play for your country. It's such a great experience. And again, challenging your game against the top in the world at that level is, is, is really, um, it's a real big opportunity and it's a privilege. So it's, it was, it was amazing for that to get that experience personally. And I loved every second of it. And well, backtracking a little bit to when you were drafted in the first round, talk us through a little bit about the process and about draft day and hearing your name called. Yeah, that's, you know, it's a stressful time. It really is. You don't know where you're going to go. There's all this excitement around it. You've been, you know, for, for me personally, it started at about 13, 14. You start dreaming of that. And then the day comes and it's so surreal and a lot going on. And you're having all these meetings with, with high end NHL people and sitting in rooms with, with legends of the game, getting interviewed to see if you're going to be their pick. And it's a lot, you know, it's a lot. So the draft day was exciting and a lot of emotions and, and then, you know, sitting there and waiting for your name to get picked and see where you're going to go. It's, it's pretty cool. It's a lot of energy and, and having your family be there. Who's been there through the whole process. And not, we were, our uh, draft was in North Carolina and actually we had, to, our family had 125 people came down, friends and family came down to support me and be in the stands. We had a whole section. <laughs> it was wild. So I got picked. I got a pretty big ovation. It wasn't a Carolina pick. It was a pretty loud ovation when I got, when I got picked by Edmonton. So uh, we had a great time and, and, and a lot of those people were along the road the whole way and, and supported me coming to my games as a youth player and, and as a junior player. So to have that day and kind of, it makes you feel like you, 
in reality, you didn't make it yet, but it, it has that feeling of I made it, you know, it's happened. I got drafted. It's, it's surreal. And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of a payoff for everybody that made sacrifices to help you get there. So it's, it's really a special day. And, um, you know, and on the flip side of it for guys that don't get drafted, it's like, I just said, I thought it was, I made it. It isn't, it isn't, <laughs> it just started. So if you're not drafted, it's still, you know, it's something of not like my career's over. I'm never going to make it. There's, there's plenty of guys that dig in and there's plenty of opportunity to stay the course and make it later on. There's late bloomers, you know, there's, it's not do or die. And also when I'll just say from my experience, when you get drafted, it just started, <laughs> but you know, that's, I didn't want to say that I let off the gas pedal, but again, it's more that day is, is time for you to put your work boots on and you're going to have a mountain to climb to make that team. And, you know, there's more ahead of you to, to, to achieve and, and to get better. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a wild ride uh, to put it, to put it in a in a frame. No, and one of the podcast guests I had was Zabinik McCulloch, who uh, I coached against. He, I was coaching a 10U team that was playing against his son's team, and he was nice enough to come on the podcast. He's still in the Phoenix area. And I talked to him because the NHL draft was going on. His brother, Milan, was the sixth overall pick. He went undrafted. They both played almost 800 games. So it just goes to show you there's different paths. It's for some, it's... Uh, you get drafted, some you don't, but you keep working and you keep showing out and showing your game and you can make it. And, uh, well, no, I, and then uh, we could, we could spend hours talking about, uh, different moments like that. You know, your AHL debut, the NHL debut, uh, playing in different leagues in Europe. Uh, but I would be remiss because something you are famous for are YouTube clips of you, like you said, entertaining and playing lacrosse on the ice. So talk a little bit about, and the, the I, I would say the most famous ones, at least the one I know the best is basically you pulling the puck on a string and playing lacrosse and doing a couple spins and scoring on professional goalies at uh, the AHL level and at various levels of hockey. Talk a little bit about uh, how that came about and how you would practice that and do different things to maybe work on that or what was the idea in your mind about trying to make that happen? We had some audio difficulties there a little bit, but uh, we were talking about your YouTube video uh, where you you have the puck on the string and you're playing uh, lacrosse with it against professional goalies. Talk about, uh, you said earlier you're an entertainer, but talk about how that came about and something that you started to use as something that, hey, this could potentially work now that the game is shifting into having shootouts be something that's used to decide points. You know, honestly, for me, it was it was something, a two-piece to two parts to that it was part of it was about trajectory and actually thinking about it in a scenario of if you pick the puck up off the ice and launch it from off the ice the trajectory on the net changes to playing the cross it was that's the game right you're shooting from above you're shooting from your shoulder or even from your waist if you're side 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 arm in it or that sort of thing so it's kind of like that's interesting to me and then and then starting to cradle with it like a lacrosse stick it just became you know when I did it and pulled it off, a lot of people were like, what was that? And I saw the reaction, right. And then you get the, you know, you get the reaction from that. And that's kind of, that's, you know, I don't want to know what the right word is for it, but it's, you love the reaction. So then it's something of, of two pieces of it. One is effective. And you talk to goalies when you, when you do it on goalies, they don't know where the puck's going to go. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't, it's coming from a total relief. You know, they can, they can check the angle 
when a puck is shot from the ice, they, they can track it. And but when you got it on your hip or on your waist area and you're launching it from there, it's a wholly different trajectory. Right. So it's actually, you know, it's effective and it's a totally different thought process in changing the plane of the shot. And, um, you know, at that time it wasn't really well, received. it wasn't really well received, but I just thought about it in a different light. And for me, it was, it was two parts of it. It was one, it was, you know, I didn't really do it in the game that much because it was, again, kind of frowned upon. It was more showboat. And if you messed it up, you could find yourself on the bench pretty quick. Um, so I left it in the bag for, for more entertaining time, all-star games and those sort of things in, in the right time to do it, right place. But, you know, in my opinion of it, it it's, you know, we've seen it now a lot. They call it the Sveshnikov. It said, you know, Mike Lake did it back for Michigan back in the early 90s. And that was really the um, – you know, for me, it was the one who opened my eyes to it. My cousin Chris showed it to me and showed me that highlight. But for me, the, the, the break it down, it's actually so effective because it's, you know, how else can you score from behind the net? It's pretty tough. You can bank it off him. But if you if say, say you try to bank it off the goalie and he miss him and it tar- starts to break out the other way, it's, it's not a great play. You know, where you pick it up and you change the trajectory of it and, and stuff it in, as long as it stays on the crossbar, it's a good goal. There's not many other ways to score from behind the net than to do that. And um, so so for me back then, it was just – it was two parts of it. It was some, doing something different and, and trying to be creative to score goals on goalies and then that that reaction of getting you know, the entertainment value of it. Um, I loved it. And I, I love doing things different and, and having people be excited by the things that I did. I think we all crave that. Um, as athletes or, or, or in anything you really do, but especially athletes, cause you're, you're performing and you're entertaining people and the way the game is in North America, at least people sit in their seats and then a player does something special and everybody gets excited for that, whether it's a highlight goal or whether, you know, it's a scrap people cheering for you. That's, that's something we crave. So, you know, I understood that young and I, I always wanted to be, I wanted to be the best and I wanted to entertain people. I wanted to be Michael Jordan. You know, he's a big influence in me and, and watching him dunk from the foul line and with his tongue out and dunk it, it was, that was, he got two points. He entertained everybody and it was different than everybody. And it just resonated with me. And that's, that's how I, you know, for me growing up, that's how I saw hockey and saw professional sports and tried to do that again. I think it was a little early. Um, little different time back then, but <laughs> I wasn't deterred, pretty strong-willed and I'd say stubborn maybe a little bit, <laughs> but it was fun. And it, it did, it definitely was something new. Um, you know, whether it was well received or not, it was, it was fun to do. <laughs> well, and I, we talked earlier about manipulating goalies. That's uh, the best way to manipulate a goalie is you change the angle of where the puck comes from. You have to change their entire vision where they look down to see it on the ice, come at them to now it's up and you get to change your position and your release point where they have so many variables that they have to figure out as opposed to carrying on the ice where it's slower to stick handle than it is when you have it on your tape and you can play with it like a lacrosse stick. And then also just in terms of, you know, you kind of focus as a goalie, I was a goalie, you kind of focus on their body position a little bit, but when you have the puck up on the lacrosse stick, it doesn't matter. It's, it's, you're not, you know, You've seen guys shoot from forehand, backhand as they're skating at you. Goaltenders, you don't see them carrying the puck up. And I, I'm surprised. I, I'm actually surprised we didn't see it more back when you had a little bit more time behind the net to operate. The way the game's played now, you don't really have that kind of time to operate. But uh, we have well, we have one special player who's 13. He likes to do it in uh, 
in roller games. I don't know if his ice coaches would be too keen on it, but I'm sure he could do it if he could. Well, that's the thing you break it down, and I don't like that part of, of the game of, of suppression of of advancement and, and creativity. Um, the game now is so – everybody's so good with their stick and their feet. It's so tough. So if you take an element of now using the air, you change, you bring a whole other element to the game. Whether you think it's showboat or not, objectively thinking about it, now guys with their poke checks are so good with it. Now you put the puck up in the air and on your hip, and when the guy goes to swing his stick at it, you can move your hands away from that and protect it like a lacrosse stick. It changes the element totally. You know, we're not talking about whether you like creativity or, or if it's hot dogish or that. You know, to talk about it like objectively, it changes a ton and it makes it much, it makes it more difficult for the defender to defend you. And then when you get to the goaltender, which we talked about earlier about not seeing that defender is a problem, we're talking about executing on the net. You have to react to a guy's hands, releasing it from his waist level. That's it changes the ball game totally for the goaltender. So I don't know if the game's going to evolve that way. I, I don't. I don't. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't teach those in my sessions with 44 Vision, but my personal view of it is that. And it's something that's it's unique, and it's 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 not about showmanship. It's actually objectively thinking about it. That it changes a lot of dynamics. It changes opportunity for the offensive player, and it takes away some of the stuff from the defensive player um, as far as advantages. And, uh, you know, when we go behind the net, it takes advantages of the defending team as well. The goaltender not being able to be settled and be relaxed. He's now got to worry about someone stuffing it in from behind the net. Um, defensemen coming to poke check. If they poke check, you keep it on the ice. They can just pin it or whack it against the wall. You put it up on your stick. They now have to hit your stick perfect to get it off your hands, right? Or slash your hands, which is a penalty. So there's some positives out of it. It's a different dynamic. Um, you know, I'd like to see it personally because I think of I think of it that way. It's not just about showmanship. It's actually like it changes a lot of things for for both the defenseman and for the goaltender when if you could do that as a player. And do it effectively. I'm not saying you get to come down and do it 20 times and it works out one time. If you get to a place where you practice it as a player and you can come down one-on-one on a defenseman, flip it up on your blade and have it like a lacrosse stick and manipulate that play, again, perfecting that like you perfect net protection, and then I don't see why not you don't implement it into your game. Um, and, and, and the reason for not implementing it into your game shouldn't be about opinions. It right. should be about, effect- about effectiveness. It's, it's about um, results results that's what's important to me it's the flip side of the coin for what like dominic hashik used to do you don't see it he does crazy stuff but it's it's like always flopping around and and, well you didn't hear it as much but you hear it when players try the lacrosse move but it's you know goalies stop 90 to 95 percent of the stuff they're hard to beat you you have to get you have to get creative and just like dominic hashik used to he'd throw his body around he'd flop around but he'd try and find a way to get something on the puck to make sure it didn't go in just like you guys are trying to figure out a way, and especially you with the lacrosse moves, and we've seen it, is just trying to figure a way to get a puck by these guys who are so good at net. Any advantage you can get, and that's it's on you as a player offensively to practice those things and get better at them, and and then you know bring it. Just it's just like anything, you know, your shootout moves. You got a certain move if you don't practice it and you're not good at, it, you're not going to chuck it into a game. <laughs> you know, sure. sauce passing if you. You know, you're, you're throwing flailing ducks all over the place in practice. You probably shouldn't do it in the game. Keep it, you know, then you should keep the pass on the ice and make it hard. But, you know, if you can dial it in and you can work on your sauce pass and, and make a eight foot sauce pass, three feet off the ice, land it flat on a guy going back door, you can do it successfully and execute. Why, you know, that's, it's again, on you to get better at it and, and dial that in. But um, it's about results at the end of the day. 
No, I, I have to laugh. I tell my kids, never watch me play like pickup hockey when we do it with the coaches or men's league because I'm not happy until I can try a like 150-foot backhand sauce pass. Now that's not, you know. <laughs> well, I was I was washed up my entire career. I, I would joke the only draft I had to worry about at 18 is if World War III break broke out. So oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, those are just things that were that were fun to me. But no, I mean, uh I, I really appreciate your time today. And we've covered a lot of ground and boy, there's there's still a lot more we could have covered uh, as well. But uh I, I try and end a lot of the podcasts with talking about youth hockey since we're geared toward youth hockey. Talk to us about a good youth hockey memory that sticks out in your mind when I ask you the question about, you know, what's something that you remember now, even to this day, very vividly when you were playing hockey as a young man. My first triple A team, the Syracuse elite junior crunch played with a bunch of great kids. Great. We were all kids at that time. Great guys, still buddies to this time. And it was the first time we played triple A. We played a hundred games that season. Um, we had, a t- there's not one memory that sticks out. The whole season was amazing. We, we got to travel around and see what travel hockey really was. Triple A hockey we went to Canada a bunch. And we thought that was like, you know, far off land, you know, <laughs> going in there, experiencing that and, and learning a lot about hockey and, and traveling every weekend, staying in hotels. It was, it was so much fun. And, and the, the, you know, I don't recommend it, but the, the holes in the wall, the hotels and hiding broken stuff and, you know, just those little mischievous things you do at 11 years old or 12 years old. And, you know, mom and dads are all having a great time in one hotel room and all the kids are all screwing around the pool. Like that was our thing. And that was, I mean, that, that sticks out to me a lot. Those are guys, a lot of those guys are still my buddies, Tyler Zinsmeyer, Kyle Kozala, Eric Smith, these guys, I can name them off. And, and that, that's one year that really sticks out. And then to give me a one A or one B, the one B would be the, the Trinity Quebec. It was so special. Uh, going up to Quebec City and, you know, it just was, a, you know, it's a festival. They have the the uh, Benums up there, the, the carnival is going at the same time. The city is in a celebration mode. And then there's this wicked peewee tournament going on with, you know, you're playing in the Colisee with 12,000 people as a 12-year-old watching you play hockey. It was, uh, it was awesome. It was so cool and a uh, great experience. So those two things were were my childhood memories that stick out and really think back and fondly about uh, hockey tournaments. I, I played five sports growing up. Just I, I'll, I liked hockey the most and just hockey tournaments and the bonds you get with the team and the, the parents get it. It is really unique in sports. And that's something that uh, I, anytime I ask the question, it usually revolves around something like that. And it's no matter what yeah. level you played at, you go play in tournaments with your buddies and you play hallway soccer and you shoot around and the hotel staff chases you down and, you know, the parents are all having fun. It's it's the same everywhere yeah. from from Maine to San Diego and all the way through Canada and all the way through the hockey playing world. And that's why we always say that, you know, hockey's a, a sport that every kid should be able to play everywhere. And just for those kind of memories and that type of camaraderie. Well, Rob Shrem, thank you so much for taking the time today to come on the podcast to talk about X's and O's and what you're doing. And we'll shout out your company. It's 44 Vision hockey.com and rob shrimp is the ceo and founder of 44 vision hockey.com coach thank you so much again for joining us today thanks for having me good luck in the season and uh i look forward to talking again in the future thanks a lot i appreciate it and uh we'll stay in touch hopefully maybe we'll do this again and we'll talk some more we'll, we'll have some more uh detailed conversations about the game and about angles and about uh, uh you know attack areas and things like that because i love talking about that but We'll wrap it up for now on episode 18. Rob Shrimp again was our guest. And as always, 
The Tucson Hockey Podcast is brought to you by Danny Platner and Altitude Home Loans, and they are an equal housing lender. All right. We will see you all next time.